to Very Amusing, your one-stop shop for the stories, secrets, and shenanigans of a popcorn-fueled theme park journalist. I'm Carly Wiesel, and I'm I'm not gonna lie. I'm not gonna I'm not gonna dance around it. I am very excited for Walt Disney World's 50th anniversary. I think it's gonna be the next time that I'm in Orlando, and I'm very much looking forward to it. I used to go intermittently all the time whenever something popped up for work, and now I think I'm gonna go for uh, 10 days, 11 days, like one long stretch of Florida time, and it's kind of far away, but it's kind of close, and I'm just excited to get into it in the future in how what month is this july that's enough in the end of september it's pretty soon it's coming around the bend i do not know what the fall will hold for me for us for the country and its scattered vaccine and covid levels but regardless i'm just going to optimistically look forward to the end of september when i'm going to be basically a temporary resident of lake buena vista and i i can't i can't wait to just be back for a chunk of time to return to work which being in Colorado. I haven't been in the parks. It's just going to be nice. I can't wait. I can't wait. Something else I cannot wait about this week's episode. Now, before we get into that, I will say it is it is a bit bittersweet. It's a little bit bittersweet because this is the last episode of this so-called season two, but we will be back in mid to late August. So just, just a little summer vacation as though I am a European company and we take big summers off from the office. We, I don't. I'm my own boss and I'm not great at it, but uh, it won't be time off because I'll be working on the next season. So basically, it's it's a, it's an American summer Friday when they let you out at 5 p.m. instead of 6 because you ended up having afternoon meetings. If you work at a corporation, uh, you know what I mean. Which brings us to this week's episode. This podcast episode came across my desk rather unexpectedly, getting an email from Malcolm Gladwell's team for him to come on a your podcast is really something. So yeah, this week we have Malcolm Gladwell, host creator of Revisionist History, one of the greatest podcasts of all time, a prolific author. I mean, you can't walk past a bookstore without seeing Blink, without seeing Outliers, without seeing Tipping Point. He's everything. He's a journalist. He is an author. He is way smarter than me, (laughs) which you will hear in this episode. But regardless, I'm not going to stick my foot in my mouth anymore. I'm going to turn it over to Malcolm Gladwell. Malcolm Gladwell. Malcolm freaking Gladwell. Here goes nothing. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. Hey, y'all, Darius Rucker here. You know, a lot of people ask me, what inspires your music? And one of the big things is a strong sense of place. That's why I love my home state of South Carolina and want to share the awesome things it has to offer. From the beautiful mountains down to the sunny coast, it's got it all. Not to mention two of my personal favorites, great golf and amazing food. Come see why I love this place. Visit discoversouthcarolina.com. Malcolm Gladwell, not a hidden Mickey. Quite the opposite, in fact. As you'll soon hear, the journalist, author, and host of podcast Revisionist History is very new to all things Disney. So how did he, fresh on the scene, wind up so deep in the realm of all things theme park that he made it here to this caramel corn-coated podcast land? By way of an academic paper, of course. The celery of entryways into the glorious offerings on the Mickey Mouse food pyramid. But alas, he's here, and I'm psyched about it. Everyone encounters the Walt Disney Company's brands at different times, and Malcolm is no different. Though most people don't arrive in style like he does, tearing apart bits of the 1989 animated classic The Little Mermaid that you, like me, probably just breezed past while under the cloak of childhood fuzzy memories and nostalgia. 
And then, you know, gathering A-list talent to recreate, modernize, and perform the final moments of that underwater film. That's right, Malcolm Gladwell has chosen to dive into Disney discourse fit first, applying that standard second look back at the past his podcast, Revisionist History, specializes in, shifting the lens directly towards the animated classic. In today's episode, Malcolm and I joyfully gabbed about princesses, Ursula, Orlando International Airport, Haunted Mansion, track meets, french fries, and of course, why The Little Mermaid's ending is so much more questionable than you might be remembering. This one covers the gamut, but I'll tell you one thing. I was not expecting him to be at my level when it came to enthusiasm. Is this the only thing Malcolm Gladwell and I have in common? Probably. The closest I've gotten to reading a book this entire year is seeing his book, Blink, being read by a character on HBO's The White Lotus. But like always, the Disney community really brings people together. So yeah, that's how he, a literal genius, wound up spending an hour chatting with yours truly, a woman whose occupation on her marriage certificate is professional clown. So with that, I give you Malcolm Gladwell. Hello, Malcolm Gladwell. It's so nice to have you here on Very Amusing. Thank you. Thank you for having me on. I'm, I'm thrilled to, to be uh, in your world for a few moments. I gotta say, uh, you're very brave to come on a theme park podcast to speak to the Disney community directly, people who grew up on these films, about your problems with The Little Mermaid. Well, I'm speaking truth to power, aren't I? That's, <laughs> that's what we do at Revisionist History. <laughs> we speak truth to power. You're the power here. We speak truth to power. <laughs> we we like casually accuse Disney movies of having moral sloppiness. A little, a little both. It's totally cool. Now, Disney, as wonderful as they are, are not perfect. I think you would be the first to acknowledge that. Professionally, I'm, agree. Yes. I'm merely pointing out that in this particular instance, I have some issues. <laughs> well, I would love for you to, in your words. Tell me why you consider The Little Mermaid to be, um, I believe, as you said, a cinematic dumpster fire. <laughs> <laughs> well, that was a, a moment of hyperbole. So <laughs> you have to know, first of all, before we go any further, I grew up without a television. And so I did not actually see any Disney animated movies until March of this year. <laughs> I'm a total newbie. All of this stuff that you are, you know, immersed immersed in is totally news to me. I mean, I have no, I didn't, not even, I, all that, you know, I grew up reading books and being read, you know, Narnia, but I mean, the whole idea that they would be, that I would be watching even cartoons. I didn't even watch cartoons on none of this stuff. So what happens is that I, I ran across this article by a, by a truly brilliant and hilarious, and when I say hilarious, you've listened to the episode, the first one with Laura Beth Nielsen. Oh, it's fabulous, yeah. She's so great. She's so great. She's one of these. So I read this weird academic paper about The Little Mermaid, all in very academic-y speak, and I thought, that's kind of weird. I haven't known this movie. So then I watched it. So I had my first ever viewing of a Disney movie in March, and I was like, first of all, if the first Disney movie that you ever see in your entire life is at the age of 57, it's a strange experience, right? I was totally unprepared. I was like, what is going on? This is weird. Anyway, and, but at the same time, I, I must say, at the same time, I was like, this is kind of, you know, parts of this are genius. I mean, it's genius. These songs are amazing, you know. So I had a very, I was kind of floored by this. And then I call up this Laura Beth Nielsen, who is this towering intellectual. She is the dean of sociology at Northwestern and a law professor as well. Like she's one of these, you know, brainiac types. And she said, well, the whole, this all started because she had two little boys and she sat down one day to watch The Little Mermaid with them. They were like six at the time or something. And about halfway through, she was like, wait a minute. What am I letting my, what am I exposing my kids to? But her reactions were the were a law professor's reactions. She's someone who believes very strongly that the function of the law is to deliver justice, right? And the way the law is portrayed in The Little Mermaid is all messed up. I mean, let's be clear. Remember, Ursula 
makes Ariel sign this contract where she says, I'm going to give you legs and the, you know, the chance to fall in love with Prince Eric, but I'm going to take your tongue. I'm taking your voice box, actually. I mean, you're going to sign this contract and the contract cannot be broken. First of all, it's a contract that involves a minor and the sale of a body part, right? In the real world, that's illegal. Secondly, the whole point of the law is that contracts can be broken. That's why we have law firms. That's why we have, you know, pages upon pages of legal scholarship that the, the law is supposed to be this living, breathing thing that adapts to our sense of what is right and wrong. In the Disney movie, the minute you sign your name to something, it's over. And the only way you can resolve the problem is to have your boyfriend murder something, someone. That's sea law, baby. <laughs> That's sea law, baby. So she's like getting, she's watching with the kids and she's getting very alarmed. And her point is actually, she makes this really good point, which is, it's not like we watched The Little Mermaid as I did at the age of 57, when presumably we're well equipped by life and our own intellectual experiences to deal with the flaws in the movie. No, no, no. We watch it when we're seven or six or five, which is the moment where we are forming our lasting impressions about the world. So she's like, yeah, these kids are vulnerable and they're being shown a movie. And by the way, I haven't even started because you listened to one episode. There's two more. I keep going on what's wrong with that movie. I'm just giving you one little flavor of what's wrong <laughs> with that movie. But her point is like, why are we doing this to our kids? giving them this totally false view of the law. For Laura, her biggest issue was <laughs> the legalities of a sea contract with a witch. Are you saying that wasn't your big, that was not that your was biggest not, No, no, no. I did not emerge being like, I would love to see what the fine print on this was. Um, I think my biggest issue, because I rewatched this with, you know, having your voice in my head, knowing we'd uh -huh. be chatting. And I think my biggest issue was at the end being like, I'm sorry, her dad can just give her legs whenever he pleases? Yeah. I would love to know what, if you had to choose one thing about this movie that is the most wrong, that upsets you the most, what is it? I mean, it's really hard for me to pick one thing that's wrong because so many things are wrong. But how about this? Here we have this spirited, intelligent, adventurous, amazing young woman who is gallivanting around the sea and who's a free spirit and she is everything we want our little girls to be, right? And then she decides she wants to be a princess and have legs and fall in love with a prince. And she gets in trouble. She's, you know, she has a dilemma. And how does she solve the dilemma? How does she get her voice back? A man has to step in and actually commit a murder in order to get her out of the jam. <laughs> this is like the most disempowering thing I've ever heard. What? That's the second thing. So you're sitting, you're sitting there with your six-year-old daughter. And point number one is it's giving her a poisonous view of what the law is all about. The movie keeps going. And then we take this incredible role model and we reduce her we, to the sidelines at the end. The only solution to her dilemma is for a prince to step in and murder someone in cold blood. It's a, it's a vigilante movie. Let's be clear. <laughs> it is. It's a vigilante movie. Right? Prince Eric is a vigilante. That's what vigilantes do. They take the law into their own hands. That's what he does. I, right? I can't really argue with you because you have thought this through from so many different angles. But also, yeah, it does happen. You're right. It's bad. It's not good. It's not good. In episode three, do you know the, um, the actor and screenwriter, Britt Marling? She did the OA and all those yes. indie food. She's fabulous. She's fabulous. She's an old friend of mine. So I called up Britt and I said, Britt, did you like The Little Mermaid as a kid? She goes, oh my God. Not only... Did I, that movie was my, you know, I memorized the songs and used to play them for family friends. She, Brit said she used to tie her ankles together with a tube sock and jump into the pool. And so she could be like a mermaid, right? That's how much she was into that movie. Now, were you into the movie that, that Little Mermaid that much? I was not. I grew up with like Disney movies playing in the background at day camp, things like that. I was never really attached to them. I definitely grew up with the TV, but it was not bumping the Little Mermaid all day, essentially. So, but Brit was squarely part of the Disney. She was, you know, her, it was basically, she was raised by her mom and by the Walt Disney Company. Those were, <laughs> so she was obsessed with this movie. So I said, you know, Brit, I want to rewrite the movie because if the ending is so problematic, 
will you rewrite it for me? She says, brilliant screenwriter. She goes, oh my God, absolutely. So she rewrites the ending and then we perform the revised version with this all-star cast. Do you want to, do you want to know who our cast is? If you're, if you're willing to say it, I'm happy to let everyone know. So our new Ariel now is not going to roll over and let other people do everything for her at the end. Our Ariel is like, she's going to take matters. You know, she's bad. So we cast as our Ariel, Jodie Foster. Amazing. <laughs> and then Brit's big thing is that Ursula shouldn't be the villain. Ursula is someone who was exiled from the kingdom. Um, she's someone who's clearly suffering. She's, there's a reason why she's so behaving so badly. You know, she's unhappy. She's, And we wanted to tell a story where, and this is my other problem with Disney movies, and we talk about this a lot in the second episode. They are these movies where, these Disney stories, good people have good things happen to them, and bad or ugly or dysfunctional people have bad things happen to them. And that's a very, very toxic thing for children. Because children look at that and they say, wait a minute, I'm not perfect. Does that mean bad things will happen to me? Right? This is the point that child psychologists have made about Disney movies. And so Britt wanted to break that cycle. So she redeems Ursula in the end. So we needed to find someone who could um, portray Ursula as not as a one-dimensional villain, but as someone who could win our sympathy and could also convincingly transform themselves at the end. So, ready? Yeah, I'm ready. Glenn Close. No. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Jody <laughs> I got Jodie Foster and Glenn Close. Well, uh, Glenn Close, pay. you got to keep in mind, we think of her within 101 Dalmatians, Laura. Like, she's already in the family. And <laughs> now you're involving in her in this project oh, yeah. that I don't oh, know yeah. what people are going to say about it. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, we were not messing around. Listen, she read the script of Brit's revision, and she was like, Oh my God, this is genius. I want in. And then our Prince Eric is Dax Shepard playing Prince Eric as the doofus he is. He's a doofus. Let's be clear, right? I I don't... Well, he was under a spell. You know, he wasn't in charge of his physical being or mental state at the time. Yeah, I love how you're coming up with excuses for the bad <laughs> behavior of Prince Eric. Under a spell. It's like, come on. You're like, you got to... He's got to be held accountable for his actions. He is he murders Ursula in cold blood, right? It's an extra legal execution. The first two thirds of that movie are beautiful and brilliant. The thing that's so brilliant about that story is that it has at its core something that is unbelievably true which is that as they mature, little girls are required to give up their voice, right? Metaphorically, that movie is absolutely spot on. It is describing something that so many generations of young girls have gone through, which is I can no longer be this free spirit who speaks her mind and does what I please. I have to play by everyone else's rules and keep quiet and let the men take over. The movie's not about a love story between Ariel and Prince Eric. It's not. It looks like it. No, it's about something much more important. It's about the fact that young girls must give up their voices when they mature. That's what the movie's about. She is forced into this totally unfair, retrograde, sexist position of having to silence herself to be accepted by society, right? So the interesting ending is Let's get, let's have her win her own voice back. I think it's a great point. I think it's a great way to do it. I'm winning you over. I no, I, you are. Because uh, to me, this movie was like, oh, this total smoke show just wanted some legs because she wanted to date a guy on land. Like, that's kind of the top level version of it. <laughs> we could aim so much higher. <laughs> we could give kids so much more because like the, everything else about the movie is so fantastic. Is all of this going to lead to you just falling down a Disney wormhole and becoming a huge fan? Because I have to ask, if you if you started with The Little Mermaid, have you proceeded to watch any other Disney princess-based films? Uh, no, uh, but I will just say this and let you draw your own conclusions. It's in my future. Okay, because I would recommend, my first reaction is that yeah. you have to watch something they've made in the past few years, like something like Moana, because I think that you will maybe view Disney princesses as a whole very differently because over the past few years they've worked so hard to really pivot that brand as a whole and you know for 
people like us who aren't willing to rewrite <laughs> the end of The Little Mermaid, that one's pretty much locked. Like, that's pretty solid of an ending. Yeah. You just take it and move on. But they really have skewed the idea of what a princess is to be this, like, brave, independent, young leader who, like, the dad isn't coming in to save them. They're often saving their dad, saving their family, saving their cultures, their civilizations, things like that. And yeah. I think that a lot of, I think you'd be very pleased with what they've done with it. I look forward digging in more. I think you're right. Little Mermaid is very much a traditional old school Disney movie. But in one sense, it's not. We talk about this a lot in the second of the three parts, that there are two kinds of fairy tales. There's um, what they call uh, 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 poetic justice fairy tales, where good people have good things happen to them and bad people have bad things happen to them. And there are what's called fairy tale twist fairy tales, where you don't know what's going to happen. You can be a bumbling idiot and win a giant fortune. There's a whole tradition of fairy tales, particularly older ones that are in that vein. Disney has always been um, poetic justice. It's very rare in a Disney movie for someone who is bad to have a good outcome. To the extent I understand some of the more recent Disney movies, they are still very much in that vein, right? The beautiful, smart princess has a good outcome. And so it's very difficult. They're not departing from that kind of narrative logic. And it's that narrative logic that I have my biggest issue with. In newer films, they do earn it. They do a lot to earn it. I know, but it's not enough. It's not enough. <laughs> you can't, you're not, de you're not departing from the template of good for good and bad for bad, right? It's that notion, the good for good, bad for bad notion is part of what is toxic about these movies. These movies, like the ones you're discussing, like Little Mermaid, these flaws are, are definitely there. You have kind of won me over. But in newer films, I think that they tackle it in a smarter way, as I assume you mm -hmm. probably will in the forthcoming episodes. Yeah. But I, I'm very much in the theme park space. Like, I'm in the mix, but I'm, I'm not, I guess, really analyzing the films. They've just become a part of my life and of culture. Yeah. I, I do a part of my world as someone who just collects objects all day and shoves them in my office shelves. I relate to her, but I have you been to a Disney theme park? I went to the one in Orlando when I was 13 years old, As but we were in typical. This will explain a lot about my personality to you. Um, I was actually part of a track team and we were training in Gainesville and we took a day trip. Is it Disney World or Disney? It's Disney Land? World. Disney World. We took a day trip, and I just remember because I was completely unfamiliar with all things Disney, it had no meaning to me. It was like, oh, there's, I went on Space Mountain, and then I basically just went home, and I, it didn't register. I just thought it was like hot, and there were long lines. And, <laughs> but I'm aware now of so many of my friends' kids, it's like an epic, it's like a pilgrimage. It's, oh yeah! It's a rite of passage. That it was not that for me, and also I was too old. I was already thirteen. So would you be horrified to know that there are multiple Little Mermaid attractions? Really? Yeah. Oh my god! Multiple. What happens at our Little Mermaid attraction? So there is a dark ride, uh, which is basically you're sitting in a in a shell shaped vehicle, a little clamshell, and you mm. move throughout scenes of the movie and. Uh, they do really dance around the third act of the film within the attraction because you kind of see and meet Ursula and then there's a bit of a vague moment and then all of a sudden you're at a wedding. Oh, <laughs> and God. I think if after reporting on this, if you went on that ride, I could just see you standing up in your little vehicle screaming. Just completely losing it. Yeah. <laughs> they really don't miss a beat, do they? The Disney people. Oh, synergy. This We're in like massive synergy world. It's kind of awe-inspiring. I love it. I have made the conscious decision to embrace synergy. I'm all for it, but there are details of certain things that they are working through removing from the parks and overhauling to modernize and make better, which I appreciate. But it is, it's, there's a long road there to go through. Yeah. What's so fascinating about all of this is, and it's something that's both obvious and not. I mean, I'm always consistently surprised by this fact. In the span of your life, the years between the age of five and the age of 10 or 11 are, it's nothing. It's six years. It's like if you live, live to 80, it's like a tiny percentage, right? And the amount of stuff that happens to you in that little window, compared to the rest of your life, it's nothing. You're 
sleeping, you're eating Cheerios and you're going to school, right? That's all you're doing. You're not, you're not traveling throughout the world. You're not power gliding off the coast of, you know, Brazil. You're not doing, you're just doing, this is incredible. But for the rest of your life, those six years, like massively influence how you think, who you are, how you, and you come back to those memories like again and again and again and again it's just i've i've never ceased to be completely kind of both amazed and baffled by this weird fact those years punched so far above their weight which is the genius of disney like okay let's just focus everything on this little window where and we'll get you for the rest of your life it's nuts I agree, but also want to mention, as many adult Disney fans listen to this podcast, I, I'm not sure if you know the full weight of how many adults are interested in this, even on their own, not necessarily tied to their childhood. Disney has kind of grown to be something that across generations, across ages, it's it draws people in. Like As our life gets bleaker and bleaker, having this idyllic place with these storylines, with happy endings, it's something to look forward to, I think resonates more and more with people who are beyond that window of age. But yeah, I think but I, you, we got to get you to a theme park. Like you would, I think you would have a good old time kind of experiencing it now, having dipped a toe into the water, pun intended. Yeah, yeah. No, I am I am looking forward to this stage of my life when I'm acquired to escort little ones to uh, uh, these things. You don't have to go with little ones. <laughs> I love how you're... you're li I'm literally going to go home tonight. There's going to be like a FedEx package from you with two <laughs> plane tickets to Orlando. Oh, yeah. Just like meet me, meet me in the clamshells at 3 p.m. Uh, I'm just trying to I'm trying to insulate you against any heat that might come your way with this series. Because I know you've expressed that you're like a, a little you're you have trepidation about Disney legal reaching out. Part of me kind of wants them to come after us because it'd be hilarious. <laughs> but, you know, because we tell and was it in the episode you listened to? This crazy story about how they went after these cartoonists in the yeah, 70s. Yeah, that was a lot. Nuts. Yeah, that was not good. They're like, and you know, they've changed the copyright laws we have in this country have been changed like 17 times because Disney has basically lobbied to have them changed. This is a company that is essentially, you know, run by a group of the most ferocious lawyers imaginable. So will we hear from them? Oh, I'm sure. But if they came after us, I would have so much fun. I can't even, you know how people say that the possibility of that happening keeps me up at night. This is the opposite for me. The possibility of that happening like, makes me have a beautiful, uninterrupted sleep. This would be so amazing if it was like revisionist history versus Disney. <laughs> like, bring it on, guys. Like, let's see what, how big your sense of humor is. uttered the words Genie Plus knows firsthand that vacations require time, money, planning, energy. And if you put all that effort into enjoying your trip already, why not extend the highlights of that getaway into your everyday with FrameBridge? Put that vintage Epcot ticket up in your office and give it a little personality. Surprise your kid with their favorite character's autograph immortalized on the wall of their room. FrameBridge makes it so easy and affordable to custom frame any photo, park map, or even cocktail napkin from a theme park hotel bar in just minutes. You can mock up exactly what it'll look like on their website before you even spend a dime. Things ship fast and they ship for free, and their colorful custom framing means they'll not only help you plan your gallery wall, but make sure your place looks cooler than the interiors of that mid-century modern home within Spaceship Earth. I love the mementos I framed with FrameBridge so much that I rearranged my entire office so I can enjoy them daily. This is not a bit. This is this is true life. They're the backdrop to my podcast Zoom interviews, my Instagram stories, and even the goofy photos we take of Pearl tip-tapping away at my keyboard like she's a miniature employee. Too often, our favorite memories of a vacation are tucked inside our phone or shoved within a drawer. And it thrills me to no end that because of FrameBridge, I can finally be surrounded by my memories. FrameBridge makes custom framing easy, affordable, and enjoyable. And on top of that, their happiness guarantee ensures that no matter what, you'll wind up with something you love. To get started, head to FrameBridge.com, because your precious travel memories shouldn't have to stay in the past. That's FrameBridge.com.
Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. After the holidays, a little cash goes a long way. The Chime checking account has tons of benefits to help, like fee-free overdraft up to $200 for eligible members, no monthly fees, and thousands of fee-free ATMs. You can even get paid up to two days early with direct deposit. Sign up for Chime today at chime.com slash goals24. Banking services and debit card provided by the Bancorp Bank N.A. or Stride Bank N.A. members FDIC. Spot me eligibility requirements and overdraft limits apply. Out-of-network ATM withdrawal fees may apply. Access to direct deposits up to two days early depends on the timing of the submission of the payment file from the payer. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Are you at all prepared for the ire of Disney fans? I mean, if I was worried about the ire of listeners, I would have been a different <laughs> business a long time ago. <laughs> I've been happily pissing people off for 40 years in journalism. I, If it worried me, I would have stopped. <laughs> I know. No. I, as a reporter, I, I didn't realize the energy of, of a fan base until I came into this space. And while I have now like been in it for so long, I am now one of them. I am also yes. on Twitter screaming about a steakhouse being closed <laughs> without notice. Um, I... I I hope people are open-minded enough to understand what you're saying and to appreciate it. I think so. You know, first of all, there's a there's a thing that the reason I'm relatively unworried about this is, you know, I'm a huge sports fan. And one of the things you learn about the nature of fandom from sports is that in the same instance, somebody can scream at you and call you all kinds of names because you have a different opinion on sports. And then Two seconds later, they will be, you know, having a beer with you and discussing what happened in the game last night. Like, it doesn't, there is a sense in some of these fan worlds, particularly in, I just say this as a, you know, in the in the very male sports world to which I have, uh, which I participated in over the last, like, it, we are all aware that it's a joke. It's not a joke, but it's not, it's not real life. It's like my affection for the Toronto Blue Jays is not like, it's not life defining. It's just a game that these guys play and that I, you know, I'm happy to watch. So I, I think of that when when people and I'm sure we will get nasty responses from Little Mermaid lovers. Um, but it's it'll be in that same spirit. It's that and it's appropriate if you have a deep love of some cultural product, um, you should come to its defense if it's under fire from some Canadian who didn't watch the Little Mermaid until he was fifty seven. <laughs> I'm an interloper. For goodness sake, I'm the worst kind of like carpetbagger who like lands in the middle of Disney, you know, a few years before retirement and declares the whole thing to be invalid. I mean, I go, what can I can I honestly expect people to be happy with that? No. <laughs> I'm worried about you, man. <laughs> I'm worried. <laughs> Do I do I not know what I'm getting into? I think uh you had me until you were like but they know it, it doesn't run in their blood. And then I'm like, oh, no. <laughs> Do I put this on a different feed? <laughs> Do I not be associated with this? <laughs> oh, oh, I'm not getting you in trouble. Are you getting in trouble? Oh, no. <laughs> you know, as as a journalist reporting on the biggest entertainment conglomerate in the world. Um, in the history of the world. Yeah. It's, it's a lot sometimes. Yeah. But I love it. I love it. I mean, it, it's really an it's a world I've never experienced before that I, I can't. I'm so excited for you to be welcomed into. <laughs> I'll file updates. I'll give you like a heads up on what kind of uh, vituperation is directed in my way. I think so. Britt Marling, my friend who rewrote the ending, I think she's a really good example of a position lots of people take. I think she feels an enormous debt of 
gratitude to Disney for introducing the magic of storytelling her to her at the age where you can become infatuated with something. But that that belief and debt of gratitude exists alongside her adult self's ability to be critical about what they were doing. And they're not they're not those two things are not contradictions. It's quite possible to hold those two beliefs simultaneously that I this this experience was hugely important for me and powerful and meaningful and it's flawed. And that's fine. This is happening right now in the Disney community, actually. Splash Mountain is a ride that's being redone. They're currently redoing this other ride, Jungle Cruise. So it is happening in the Disney fan space where there is a strong contingency of people who are, and I will say wrongly, so attached to those stories that they can't see how problematic mm -hmm. they are and why it's best to make a theme park a space where everyone can feel comfortable and not yeah. be made uncomfortable by what's inside the attraction. And it is, it has caused a bit of a rift and the little mermaid is something that never tracked for me that it could have fallen into this group of problematic things yeah. and now i'm watching i'm watching and i'm hearing all this i'm like oh yeah yeah you know if i might be so bold as to give advice to the disney company um <laughs> go ahead it's making me enormously happy to, to be this <laughs> presumptuous at this point in the podcast there's a very important distinction between when storytelling reacts defensively or after the fact, these kinds of criticisms is one thing, and reluctantly or belatedly re-edits stories to make them more acceptable. That's something I don't like. What I do like, though, is when storytellers from the beginning say, look, stories are living, breathing things. They should change. And I know you liked that story a particular way when you were a kid, but by the way, if we go back to the way stories were told around the campfire, they didn't tell the same story every time, right? 200,000 years ago, no, each new generation of storyteller took a, a narrative that they had heard as a kid and they tweaked it and they changed it. And they that's how storytelling evolved was with people taking liberties with stories. And Dis if Disney wants to be this kind of curator of a set of really important narratives about childhood in this country, they should say right out, look, these things are these stories are alive. And if they did that and then they told their legal departments to stand down and if they weren't so crazily protective of their characters, then things like what Brit did in rewriting the end of Little Mermaid could be part of the legitimate Disney storytelling experience. Why wouldn't they do a like in my perfect world, we get a call from Disney legal and they would say, you know what Brit Marling did in remaking the end of Little Mermaid is so beautiful. Can we? remake the movie and end it that way? And we would say, fantastic. Well, they are currently remaking a live they action are. version, but I, I know. don't know anything about the script. I cannot wait to see whether they do anything with the last, from the wedding scene on is when things start to fall apart, right? Yes. So the question, that's where Brit's, our version Brit, that Brit wrote for us, that's where she starts. She starts with when Aerily is looking at the, beginning of the ceremony. I remember she's perched on the side of the boat um, and looking with horror at uh, Eric marrying Ursula. Um, I'm really curious to know what this live action, what they do from that point on. And if if I would, I, I mean, I, I kind of can't believe they're going to do it the old way. Can you? I wouldn't, I wouldn't expect them to. They've just made such significant strides in storytelling in the past five, 10 years to be so cognizant of all of this that I wouldn't expect that I wouldn't expect it to be a play-by-play -play, but also they know very well what fan reactions are like like I I don't even know if you'll believe me when I say this but there is a current active contingency of Disney fans who are mad that they removed a portion of Pirates of the Caribbean the ride because they were selling women at auction there's people who are mad that that is gone and there's a lot of them so like that's kind of where we're working with <laughs> So there's a lot of people doing a lot of good, but it is it is a slow moving change yeah, in terms of like public a little bit of uphill. Reception. It's a little bit yeah. of an uphill battle. Yeah. yeah. Like just, you know, you don't want to just see women sold for purchase. Like <laughs> for oh, it's, I think it's liter like literally a, a wench auction. So <laughs> wait, wait, when did they finally get rid of the wench auction? How long they, ago? It was a few years ago. Um, they did it periodically across different parks. 
I'm just going to I'm going to say this on here. There is a scene in the Haunted Mansion where you're in the stretching room. Well, you don't know because yeah. you haven't been back. We got to get you back to the parks. Uh, you're in this, you know, this old this old mansion. You walk into a stretching room and the room magically stretches. And then mm. at the end, it's lights out and there's a body hanging. And this is something that all of us all ages, it's like everyone goes on Haunted Mansion and you're just seeing a, a person's body hanging within the first few minutes of the ride. And that's seemingly normal. And like yeah. just stuff like that where you're like, why are we seeing a brutal suicide like why is this happening in a ride and there's a lot of stuff that they're working on pulling out it's just mm. it it's taking time but they're actively doing it and i'm very thankful for it i feel like i should have had this conversation with you before i started <laughs> i decided to do no fewer than three episodes of revisions history on little mermaid in fact why didn't i interview you for this we could have had four episodes and the fourth episode was just you kind of like stage setting you know like me being like like put all your profiles on private like lock it down just one, disney yeah, just, community comes for malcolm gladwell just walking me through malcolm you probably don't want to have your you know email address there and probably want to hide where you're living uh, <laughs> yeah that would have yeah. been very that would have been very helpful advice yeah next time when i do this again I'm going to come back to you and uh, have you prep me. Not to get you in more trouble, but do you have any strong opinions about other Disney stuff, Disney theme parks, Disney rides, Disney characters, storylines that you haven't mentioned that you want to get off your chest? No, because as I've said, I know almost nothing about Disney. I didn't. I was a. I was the I was the kid raised without any of this stuff at all. Um, I. You know, when I said the only so I ne we didn't have a TV, and we never went to the movies. In fact, the only, I think I saw two movies between the age of, before the age of 15 or 16. And then the only cartoons I ever saw were at school. At, they would sometimes play cartoons at lunch. But because I had such little exposure to these things, I didn't have, I didn't really understand what the appeal was. It wasn't like I was drawn to them. I just was like puzzled and rarely watched more than a few minutes of them. And I was like, why is this interesting? It's just, I mean, it just seemed to be so kind of inferior to what I was getting from the books I was reading at that age. So I just like, so it was all this, all, this whole stuff just kind of escaped me. It made me realize, by the way, just how much stuff out there I know nothing about. I mean, this is kind of a weird thing to just, to realize at the age of at my advanced age but there's like huge parts of the world that i'm <laughs> completely <laughs> ignorant of but it's so interesting that like you've had this career you have such a critical eye and now you have the opportunity to go to this place that is so layered both in like history and design and art and stories and you can approach it with the perspective you have now like you'll be able to discuss a theme park in a completely different way that probably nobody else can Ever? Well, Laura Beth Nielsen. She'd be no, she's she's on... too busy with sea contracts. She gets not the same. <laughs> now, is does the theme park now take precedence over the movie? I mean, is it a more It depends on the experience? franchise. Yeah. So if we're talking something like Star Wars or Marvel, those mm -hmm. franchises, the in park lands, which are both very new, those are just an in-park representation of those stories and of that universe. Whereas other things just live so largely within the park that the movie is somewhat secondary. Oh, I see. Oh, I see. An example of the latter would be? Probably like the way Snow White is in the parks these days. There's different types of attractions. Uh, there's character meet and greets, but it's not, it's not typical that people will be re-watching that film all the time it's more like yeah. the characters and the experiences live on within these very popular theme park attractions i really think you should go i don't mean you're to, making like... a strong case you're making a strong like i said i'm gonna wait for my package of passes and plane <laughs> tickets to arrive at my door yeah it will arrive with your uh cease and desist from disney legal <laughs> <laughs> funny thing i've been orlando is a city i know very well but for other reasons i'm you know conferences and things that i've spoken i've probably been to orlando um, fifty times in my life. I mean, what? but I've so still what never... you, why why aren't you going to park? What are you doing? These are places that are so many people toil over just so you can feel joy. So, 
now I now um, let me say something else. Another reason why Brit Marling was so crucial in doing our revised Little Mermaid for Revisionist History is where did Brit Marling grow up? Ready? Orlando. No. Yeah, totally. I didn't oh. know she was from Orlando. She's from Orlando. She grew up in this world, right? Literally. She's literally in <laughs> yeah. this world. So it's like, so it's not just like, so it's, this is what's so fascinating about her. Um, I just think she's such a genius. But she, she's not, so many of the people who write TV shows and things, and they're from, you know, they either grew up in Manhattan or they grew up in Los Angeles. They're children of these very literate, like, and there's a reason why um, so much of the kind of thinking and writing about storytelling in Hollywood feels familiar because people are all coming from the same place. Brit, in the work that she's done, has done things that are consistently totally unfamiliar, right? And one reason is that she writes them with her friends all, who is, you know, the children of, child of Iranian immigrants. So he's also an outsider. And two is she's from Orlando. She's like, she's not, she did not grow up on the Upper East Side of Manhattan and go to like, you know, Spence, right? And get <laughs> yeah. in, and then and then on to Harvard. She went, in fact, and this is my other favorite fact. Where did she go to college? This is also super interesting. She goes to both her and Zoll go to Georgetown. So who else is at Georgetown at the exact same time as those two? Uh Mike Brabiglia, Nick Kroll, uh John Mullaney. Uh, I'm missing. There's two others that I'm missing. There's, they're all the same age. The, all these people who like play this hugely important role in comedy um, in our generation, um, they all come out of, first of all, Georgetown. When people mention Georgetown, you don't think this is this birthplace of, you know, alternative no. comedy. No, <laughs> but that same thing. The reason those guys had women and two had such an interesting perspective is they're not from the traditional places. They're they're weirdos. They're outsiders. They're they're at a Jesuit school for for goodness sake. Right? It's just like that's and that's why, you know, it's so we forget this sometimes that um storytelling is so much some very often so much more powerful and original when it comes from unexpected places. Um and that's why it's so important to kind of be open to voices from everywhere. They just not for show. But because it's better stories, right? It's just like different stuff you'd never get before. I I also like I gotta say, if she's from Orlando, you gotta do her justice. You gotta you gotta every do time, this. No, no. Every time I go to Orlando, I will text her a picture, and I'll, <laughs> it'll be like, and I'll always pretend that I'm visiting her parents, which just fills her with horror. <laughs> so I'll say, on on my way to see your mom, or or I'll take a picture of an Orlando police car, and I'll say. Just got pulled over by Orlando's finest. Like, I just come up with some completely random. I never took like, you for a trolling <laughs> type. I love this. Oh, I love trolling her. She's hilarious. And there's always, for some reason, she always, for some reason, the notion of me on her old turf is so terrifying to her that there's always a split second where she believes me. And then she like realizes that I'm just making fun of her. Oh, my God. Okay, I want to ask you one question. So if you're... Uh, you're, I assume, going to MCO, the the airport in Orlando. Are you, yeah. when you see billboards, when you see all these ads for Universal's newest ride or Disney's newest thing, are do you clock them or do you just move past? Are they just color in the journey Doesn't, of your life? Don't even notice it. My, I never, things, I, when I, as a, I grew up in a family where we didn't do any of those things. We never we never like all of these things that other people associate with childhood were just not part of my childhood. So we never, the idea that we would go on a vacation that involved a theme park or anything like that was just like, I mean, it was never. Malcolm, you're like, up. you're like patient zero for being able to report on Disney. Do you understand? Like you come with no baggage. <laughs> I you, can, you, you can actually like accurately assess what's happening there. You not, have no nostalgia. I say I have no nostalgia. You have no nostalgia. Let me, let me let me just blow your mind a little bit more. How old was I when I first went to McDonald's? Ready? 15. <laughs> <laughs> no part, no part, I was involved in no part of this whole like, you know, 
So yeah, no, I, you're right. I'm. I'm you're I'm, the I'm, perfect choice. I might be the perfect choice. And what happened is, if I went, and my mind was just completely blown. I was like angry at my parents for not exposing me. There's that's there's a five percent chance that that's possible. Well, yes, but also I think that as as a you know adult to adult who who went there and realized, oh, this place is incredible. I didn't know what I was missing because when you're on the outside, you view this contingency of Disney fans as this like. Uh, like it was this this thing that you just can't really grasp. Like a lot of people love it. You usually know one to three people who like it. It's like, oh, my mom's friend or like that woman in my office. You don't really tangibly mm. get it. And then once you're inside of it, you realize, oh, these people know how to live. They know how to be an adult to kind of shed all that responsibility and go somewhere and just truly enjoy themselves and not mm. care. Just be like carefree like mentally just get into that space as a child and be free and enjoy yourself. And it it's very, very hard to do that in regular life, which is why I think a lot of people crave going to theme parks. Yeah, Sports serves that function that you've described for me. It's an, it's an alternate universe that allows me to escape from the kind of concerns of my normal life. I am obsessed with track and field. Things can be going very badly wrong for me at work, but I know even if this was the worst day of my, I know that when I'm finished talking to you, I'm going to go and I'm going to watch online a track meet that's taking place right now in Oslo, Norway. <laughs> and everything that went wrong today will be forgotten when I am watching that track meet. I understand. But I will say to that, whereas I know like, you, you can run, which is the physical version of that. What if instead of that passive activity, like what if you watching that track meet is the same as you watching a movie, I don't know, like The Little Mermaid. And then uh, you go to a theme park and you can experience that movie in real life. You can be a part of it. You can yeah. say hello and talk to the characters. Like it all comes alive. I think there is this certain magic that is definitely engineered at theme parks heavily, but it just, it kind of happens when everything comes together perfectly with the music and the scenery and the, everything, the storytelling. It really is kind of an out of body experience when it hits right. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. I want that for you. <laughs> the only last thing I'll say is that if you could create a theme park ride, so any sort of experience where you sit in a seat and you move through space, what would you want that to be? Oh, wow. Well, I'd want to do one, you know, I want to do a, I mean, I'm sure this has been done. So I don't know whether I'm about to give you an idea, but can you imagine doing one that was about something like uh, the civil rights movement? where, I mean, you wouldn't obviously have violence, but to give people a sense of what it, either what it meant to be, you know, uh, black in the South in the 1950s, or what it meant to take on that establishment in the 1960s, or I don't know, like um, just the kind of, to communicate the emotionality and, and um, of that, of that experience. I mean, I realize people would leave, maybe they would leave uplifted, they might leave shaken, they might be, but just I think they would, you know, my limited experience with Space Mountain years ago suggests to me that there is, you can create a certain kind of, just to what you were just saying, You these people who make these rides are brilliant at creating certain kinds of really, really powerful emotional experiences using technology and all manner of media and also the fact that you're physically moving is, you know, I mean, can we make a different kind of museum experience that's really kind of immediate and visceral using the same techniques? That would interest me a lot. Nothing like that exists. Well, then um, <laughs> you, you, I trust you can find the appropriate <laughs> investors and we'll make it happen. Yeah, <laughs> not, no problem at all. Uh, thank you so much for coming on the show. This has been really fun. This was wonderful. I'm, I'm so happy to have thought about The Little Mermaid more critically than I would have ever Good. done. And I hope you enjoy episodes two and three in our ridiculously over-the-top examination of this most important movie. <laughs> hey, Carly. My name is Ross. I just wanted to bring up the fact that the Disney Dining Plan logos have been visible on all of the menus for all of the festivals since the parks reopened last year. So I don't know if that opens up a whole other can of worms, but I'm not sold on the dining plan coming back by October 1st. We'll have to see, I guess, but uh, yeah, let me know what you think.
Thanks. Thank you for calling. I'm going to somewhat take the L on this, but I will redeem myself because I got no less than a lot of people who told me this after last week's episode. So allow me to set the scene, if you will. I no longer really cover food festivals at Epcot or Disney California Adventure or anything like that because I do not like them. I have decided to be public about that and I'm okay with it. Also, covering them sucks. I hate melting in the sun while taking photos of a handful of food atop a trash can, but also personally, it's not really a must do for me. It's not something I would ever plan a trip around personally. I know other people do, and there are other people who are doing a much better job covering food festivals, so I leave it up to them. I'm certain I've talked about this on here before. I'm certain, but I do not like temporary food. That's that's my rule. If it was that good, they'd have it on the menu year round. And I'm sticking to that. Even if I know some stuff is really a knockout, like that violet lemonade thing, and I'm dying to get my hands on that three cheese beignet at France that Disney Food Blog posted about. But again, that's kind of the extent of time and energy I'm spending on this stuff because other people are doing it much more exceptionally. And I just am popping in for a hopeful cheese donut. Now, I mentioned this because people were quick to tell me that Disney dining plan symbols were all over menus for months now, which I admit I did not know because I'm not paying attention to food signs for stuff I'm almost 100% sure I won't be eating. But here's why I'm going to double down on my first response. I would argue that Disney dining plan symbols on those menus and on others is indicative of the fact that the people in charge of signage also have no idea when Disney dining plan is coming back, just like us. It has now been publicly confirmed that it'll be here by the end of 2021. But they don't want to have to redo all those signs whenever they make the choice to actually have Disney dining plan again. So it's just cheaper to make all the signs with the symbol and see what happens. And when you add in COVID and travel patterns and everything in flux, I bet they weren't sure then, aren't sure now, and they're just slapping them up on every sign until the end of the year. Will Disney dining plan come back by October 1st? Again, I have no idea. I'm just out here making an educated guess. That's not really my realm of intel until we get closer to when the news actually drops. But if you view Disney Dining Plan as a sales tool to fill hotel rooms, it could open up for the very end of fall. In that space between Halloween and holiday and early November, you know what I mean? And that would coincide with the end of Food and Wine Festival at Epcot. So again, just a shot in the dark, just me looking at the situation and taking a guess. But that's why I'd assume they're still putting symbols on everything, just in case, because they, like us, don't know when the switch will be flipped. I hope that helps. And for those of you who love DDP, I hope it comes back. I wish you good food tidings earlier than later this year. Hi, Carly. My name is Becca. I have a question about Happily Ever After. So I heard the awful news this week that it is not going to be returning, which I'm so sad about. But I did see one cast member comment on an Instagram post that Happily Ever After was always meant to be a temporary bridge between Wishes and the next show. People were asking him if he was confusing it with Epcot Forever, but he doubled down and said that He knows directly from people he works with that Happily Ever After was always meant to be temporary. So I wondered if you could use your detective skills to find out if that's true or not. Thanks, Carly. Love you and love the podcast. Mm, No, that's not true. (laughs) Yeah, that's that's not true. Um, So basically, if you look at nighttime shows in a certain way, you could say that they are all temporary, that none of them are permanent, because as we've seen, Everything does eventually end. The Main Street Electrical Parade, yes, it dips in and out constantly, which I love because I'm obsessed with it. That ends. Something like Illuminations, which had a two-decade run at Epcot, that still ended. Now, that that doesn't mean it was a temporary show. That doesn't really, I guess it would technically somewhat be closer to a permanent show, but it wasn't put up and then expected to last forever and ever and ever and ever. Ever. However, Happily Ever After was something like Illuminations. It was the new nighttime show, period. There was there was no plan as far as I have looked into it, and I am pretty rock solid on this one. There was no plan for Happily Ever After to just be an interim show like Epcot Forever, which you mentioned. Happily Ever After was the show. You watch that show and you know it's not a temporary show. So I don't know who said that. I don't know where that thread was. But it's big wrong, and I I should just leave it at that. But yeah, Happily Ever After is an unbelievable nighttime show. Not only was it 
the nighttime show presented when it launched about four years ago, but it is also one of, if not the best, live entertainment that Disney has ever done. The fireworks, the projections, the music. I always say this, that I went with my friend Alex when we saw it for the first time and she cried and she was watching it through a tree. She could barely see the castle. We could barely see anything and she still cried through a tree. So even with a, with an impeded viewing when you couldn't see the whole thing, it was still emotional enough to make you cry. So Happily Ever After will forever be lots of our favorites. I do not anticipate anything ever, ever being better than Happily Ever After. I know that when Wishes came out, people were like so upset about Wishes being over. And then Happily Ever After came out and it felt kind of like a a balm. Like, oh, okay, this new thing is out and it's fabulous. I don't anticipate that happening again because you can't level up from Happily Ever After. And it doesn't have kids singing in it, so it's the perfect nighttime show. But yeah, that person is is big wrong. And I'll I'll leave it at that. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. It's time for another season of The Palmetto Porch, an original podcast from Discover South Carolina. I'm Devin Whitmire. Join me as I get to the heart of what makes South Carolina such a great place to visit by speaking to the locals who make it so special. Premiering December 5th, find The Palmetto Porch wherever you get your podcasts. And for more information about our show, visit scpalmettoporch.com. so much for listening and thank you to Malcolm Gladwell for coming on my carnival of a podcast. You can find Malcolm's work literally everywhere, everywhere. I mean, go outside your house and you're going to stumble upon Malcolm Gladwell's work. The dude has one of the top podcasts in the country, in the world. Him coming on Very Amusing will never not be bananas to me. I... (laughs) I still can't believe it happened, but it did, and I have audio proof. And I gotta say, it was a whole heck of a lot of fun. Do not miss the three-part series on his podcast, Revisionist History, which, as you've heard, rewrites the ending of The Little Mermaid with an all-star cast. If you are listening to this when it comes out, episode two drops on his feed tomorrow, with the grand finale out next week. And if you ever see Malcolm at the Orlando airport, please be sure to encourage him to go to Walt Disney World as much as I did. We gotta get him on Dumbo or something. We gotta. Please subscribe to Very Amusing on Apple Podcasts. You can do this by going into that Apple Podcasts app on your phone, your tablet, or your computer and hitting the teeny, 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 tiny plus sign on the Very Amusing show page. On episode pages, if you hit an arrow that only downloads it, but you need the plus on the other page to subscribe, which turns into an arrow, it's very confusing. But if you go to the main podcast page and you hit that little mark, it helps a lot, I'm told, especially since I will be taking a small break for the next few weeks. So if you could please subscribe so you know first before anyone when these podcast episodes drop, I'd appreciate it. I would love it. I would love it so much. And I don't know if you can take the extra minute to show some love. Maybe give us a good rating. Maybe even leave a little review. Like when you go to a restaurant and they bring you the check, but it's in that little notebook and you're like, okay, I, I didn't know I was signing this like a and b but I, I guess I'll say something. I guess I'll say nice food. Not pressuring you into it like that, but you know, it'd be chill if you could just like give it a five stars. That's too bad, right? As I mentioned, we are going to be off for the next handful of weeks, returning in mid to late August with a whole new batch of stories, secrets, and shenanigans. Thank you so much, genuinely. Thank you for listening, for following, for liking, for subscribing, for engaging, for texting your friends, for responding to someone when they post, hey, what podcasts should I listen to that are like cool and about theme parks? It all starts from one recommendation, one kind word, one enjoyed episode, and I am so thankful for each and every one of you. And simply for the fact that you like this show enough where I have the privilege to keep making it. So thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. You can find me, Carly Wiesel, at Carly Wiesel on Twitter, Instagram, and at my Facebook group, The Fomaly. And I'm online all day, so come say hi. This 
episode was edited laboriously by Jeff Fox. Thanks so much for listening. See you real soon. Hey, honey, it's mom. That was a fun episode. I really liked it. It went by way too quick. I was on the treadmill, and before you know it, just like 45 minutes was gone. So I can probably use about two or three of those a week just to get me on the treadmill going. But when I heard about the pickles being gone, I was really upset about that. I love the pickles, the big green ones. They're so, so good. And I can't imagine why they would stop that. Because my three favorite things are the drumsticks. I know not a lot of people love them. The drumsticks, the pickles, and the popcorn. And when they stopped the drumsticks for a while, I was so sad, but they brought them back. So maybe they'll bring the pickles back. I don't know. I hope so. But I just wanted to say this was a great week, a lot going on. And I was very happy to see that article about Orlando and the magic continues in time. That was so cool. I love reading your things. Anyway, you have a great week and call me and I'll talk to you soon. All right, sweetheart. Bye-bye.